Good afternoon, everyone. Nice to see you. It's been a few years since uh, I have been here as well. It's the uh, time for out-of-town speakers, I guess. Mr. Trebig says, uh, long-time minister, when he introduces me, I'll tell you how long time I am. I went to a high school that was built when Abraham Lincoln was president. <laughs> now, he wasn't still president when I went there. There's a distinction. There's a difference there. And speaking of uh, being a long time, uh, or being around a long time, I went to a two-room schoolhouse for the first six years of going to school. It was in a Grange Hall. How many of you know what a Grange Hall is? Okay, several of you do. It's kind of like a co-op. Uh, the downstairs had two large rooms, and in one room, three classes were held, grades one through three, and another room, grades four, five, and six. Upstairs was a large open room for meetings. The first uh, three grades were taught by a lady named Gladys Gage, very pleasant, round lady, very cheerful lady. Grades four, five, and six were taught by a tall, slender, rather strict lady named Jeannie P. Benjamin. They were both, you know, fairly pleasant uh, people, although Mrs. Benjamin was rumored to have a, a length of rubber hose in her desk drawer. I never actually saw it in person, but I, I did hear about that. I did have some difficulty with Mrs. Gage, though. One time, all the students were up on the second floor of this uh, Grange Hall in the meeting room. We were getting ready for some kind of uh, school function. I was in fourth or fifth grade at the time, so I was under Mrs. Benjamin's care, but all six grades were up there. I, I don't know, it could have been you know, a holiday celebration or something. But nothing was going on right at the minute. I was, uh, right at the moment, I was seated down in the front next to my friend. We were waiting for things to get started, and boy, I noticed an awful smell. And I commented on it to my friend. I said, boy, something stinks in here. He said, must be Mrs. Gage. And right at that moment, Mrs. Gage was walking by. She didn't hear anything except her name. She said, what? You know how you do when you hear your name mentioned? And my friend said, I said something stinks in here. And Cecil said, it must be Mrs. Gage. Now, this is not the lady with a rubber hose in her drawer, and she's not a lady who was unpleasant to anybody that I ever knew before or since, but she did haul right off and whack me right across the cheek, just with no hesitation whatsoever. I was humiliated. I was so shocked, I didn't defend myself. I, I still regarded this guy as my friend, but I, I didn't want to betray him and say, you know, th this guy said it. Um, and I didn't talk to her after that and explain that it, I didn't do anything wrong. I was mistreated, misjudged, and suffered as a result of it. I'd like to tell you a story about someone who was mistreated much more seriously than I was at that moment, even though I, was, I felt bad for myself. This is from an article that Time Magazine published in the 1980s about an event that happened during that decade. It concerns a man who during that time was Secretary of the uh, Department of Labor in the United States under Ronald Reagan's first administration. The secretary's name was Ronald, uh, Raymond J. Donovan. He had the distinction of being the first serving member of the cabinet of the United States to be indicted. Not a great record. Now eventually the charges were proven totally false, but long before that he had to resign his position and he had to endure a long trial. He was indicted on charges of larceny and fraud in conjunction with a construction project. 
The grueling criminal investigation and subsequent trial took over two years and cost him over $13 million to defend himself. The charges were utterly foolish. They were so, uh, so odd, so foolish, so flagrantly poorly made that when the uh, judge announced the non-guilty verdict, several of the jury members broke out in applause. But that did not make things better for Mr. Donovan. He is remembered for one question that he asked after everything that was done. His reputation was in tatters. He's remembered for asking this question. Which office do I go to to get my reputation back? Now, you may not remember the name Donovan, but you might well remember that, that statement, that question. Others have quoted it down through the years. Where do I go to get my reputation back? What is a person's reputation? Your reputation is your position. In this case, he was a cabinet minister. It is your standing. It is uh, your good name is an expression that we use commonly in the English language. You ever had your motives and your actions badly misjudged? I hope never charged in court. But has your reputation ever been damaged, maybe even in God's church? Has your good name been tainted? I can tell you where to go to regain your reputation after it has been lost. In order to do that, I need to go back into the Old Testament to a section in history to read about somebody who was falsely accused and almost got his reputation in tatters. I'm talking about King David. He was at this time, 2 Samuel chapter 10, in his late 30s. Some of you can well identify with that. David at this time had been king over Judah for seven years, and uh, he was just being established as king over Israel, all of Israel. Remember, he was king over Israel for about 30, 33 years, uh, Judah just seven years, and, uh, and Israel kind of struggled for the first several years. Well, chapter 10 of 2 Samuel jumps right into when David was made king over everything, as kingdoms do, as nations do when they are established. He set about to uh, solidify Israel's name and standing with all the nations surrounding the country at the time. Let's read a few verses here in 2 Samuel chapter 10. I see several of you who were up in Sherman last Sabbath, and I apologize for giving the same message uh, again. Someone said beforehand, it must mean God wants you to hear it twice. It's, it's only whose people, who, people whose reputations are really in tatters who need to hear this twice. Um, now, I, I really would like to give different sermon every time I speak, but it just worked out that you're going to hear this one twice. I did change it. See if you notice anything different. 2 Samuel 10, verse 1. Now, it happened after this, after David had been reestablishing the authority or the bounds of the nation of Israel, that the king of the people of Ammon died. Ammon was a nation to the north and east of Israel at the time. After the king died, his son reigned in his stead. The son's name was Hanan. David said, I'm going to show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him, Hanan, concerning his father. David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon, and the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, you really think that David is honoring your father because he sent comforters to you? You need to understand that David has sent servants here to spy on the city 
for the sake of overthrowing it, just like he has overthrown some uh, nations around. We'll read about that in a few minutes. Well, Hanan took their advice. He took David's servants, shaved off half their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks, and sent them away. Now, commentaries say there's nothing in history that shows what the symbolism of cutting off the beard was, but you can pretty well tell by, you know, you see young men around with beards and they don't generally have just half a beard. It's, it's the full beard. Now, they may have a smaller beard as they're, they're trying to grow it, uh, or they may give the perpetual three-day look because they keep cutting it down, but they, they don't have half the face shaved. It was a way of humiliating the people. Uh, the envoys, and obviously cutting off their clothes at the buttocks goes without any interpretation. It was a humiliating thing to do, and deliberately so. When they told David what had happened, that is the envoys told David what had happened, he sent to meet them because the men were greatly ashamed after this was done to them. He told them to wait there in Jericho until their beards were grown back and then to come back. When the people of Ammon people under King Hanan saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maacah, 1,000 men, and from Ishbab, 12,000 men. You get the impression that a major uh, battle or major war was about to take place with all of these many, many thousands of people that were gathered together. The NIV Cultural Backgrounds Bible says that when an envoy was sent in those years, they were to be treated as the king that they actually came from or whom, from whom they came. And uh, when the beard was shaved off and the garments were cut off, it was just exactly as if it had been done to David himself. It was a deliberate, calculated affront to King David for Hanan to do this. People literally died as a result of what Hanan did in treating David's ambassadors this way. We read this later on in the chapter, in chapter uh, 10 of 2 Samuel, verses 18 and 19. Then the Syrians fled before Israel. I'm not reading all the interim verses. You could read that, but there was a battle. The Israelites fought against the Syrians and the Ammonites, and uh, the Syrians fled before Israel. David killed 700 charioteers. If you flip over to Chronicles, Chronicles parallels its account, and Chronicles said there were 7,000 charioteers. Uh, one commentary says that that's a more likely number. It just fits better with the overall dialogue. So 7,000 will say probably, and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians, certainly more died, Ammonites died as well as Syrians, but 40,000 of the Syrians died. You know how many Americans died in Afghanistan? about five to 7,000 in 20 years of war. And here you have a battle in which about 50,000, at least 50,000 people died uh, in a very short period of time. It was a horrific uh, cost that was paid because of the decision that Hanan made. David and his people struck Shobak, the commander of the Syrian army. He died there, and when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer, remember that name, we'll come back to it, Hadadezer, saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and they served them. These Syrian kings came from the north of Israel. Ammon was to the northeast. The Syrian kings came down from the north. They were defeated. They made peace with Israel. And then the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. 
They were neighboring kingdoms or countries, but alliances did not go forward between these countries. It literally changed the course of history between these nations at that time for Hanan to do what he did with the representatives that came from King David. Think of the number of people that were affected by that, not just the 40, 50,000 or so or more who died, but their extended family, uh, their, their widows, their mothers, uh, children of the soldiers who died, and the impact on history down through time. A tremendous impact because of a terrible misjudgment. David literally was trying to make an alliance, a friendship alliance with Ammon. And instead, they got involved in a very bitter and miserable, costly war. Why did Hanan do this? The Bible doesn't say what his reasons or motivations were. You can speculate. I would speculate that maybe he was trying to prove himself. He just took over from his dad. Remember how Rehoboam acted when he took over from Solomon? And he felt the need to assert himself and show that I'm a different guy. I can stand on my own. Maybe that was part of it. David was a very popular king, even though he was not yet established over all of Israel. He'd been king over Judah. He was known for decades as a successful warrior against the Philistines. Maybe Hanan felt that he had to show himself tough against David. We don't know. But we do know that he made a number of mistakes. And that's what I'd like to do at the beginning here, is look at the mistakes that Hanan made. And you'll see why as we go along. His first mistake was being somewhat arrogant. Nowhere does the scripture indicate that he ever considered the possibility that he could be wrong. He was going on his gut reaction, and he assumed that because I think this way about David's envoys or ambassadors, therefore, it must be so, and uh, I won't trust them. It is human nature to go with your gut instinct. Next, he chose to let the past color his thinking. Just as the relationships between the people of Israel today, the state of Israel and their neighbors, Palestinians and other Arabs around there, is affected by something that happened many decades ago, something happened several decades before this event that affected the relationship between Ammon and Israel. You know of this in the history, whether you remember the details or not. When Saul was first anointed king, he was humble at the time. He did not just go and, and assert his, uh, his throne or, or take the throne and begin to rule as a king. He went back to ranching. A city in Israel was attacked at the time, the city of Jabesh Gilead, and it was attacked by a king named Nahash, who was the king of Ammon. He surrounded the people of Jabesh Gilead, and when they saw that they were surrounded, they said, we surrender, and he said, I'll tell you what, you come out here and let me gouge out all of your right eyes, and, and then you can surrender. I want to humiliate all of Israel, Nahash said. A very unfriendly, horrible thing to do, brutal thing to do. Well, then Saul was inspired to rise up and take command of the army. He slayed the uh, oxen that he had that he was working with, cut them into 12 pieces, and uh, sent the pieces of oxen around to the tribes of Israel and said, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't come and join the army and fight with me against the Ammonites. He did. Nahash lost at the time. So there was bad blood between Israel and the Ammonites. So maybe the advisors of Hanan were looking at this, and uh, they were unwilling to let the past go. It is human nature to justify bad judgment based upon something that happened in the past. You ever hear something like that? Well, you know, his family, their family did this. 
uh, their child, their grandchild, their grandfather, etc., did this and that in our families. And we've got some history with them. You ever hear that kind of expression? That is what happened between these countries. Another problem was Hanan chose to accept bad advice from the princes. Verse 3, I read to you that the princes had given this uh, counsel to Ammon. Let's read it again. The princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, their lord. So these were men of stature. It's like we found when we came in, Gail and I came in, we saw six or seven people out here in the hallway. We thought these are the elders of Israel who are gathered here making judgments in the hallway of the gateways. I accused them of that. They said, no, that wasn't the case at all. Mr. Smith was telling jokes for some reason. These advisors asked him, do you think that David really honors your father because he had sent comforters to you? Now, why did they say that? Why did they, they jump on this? Why did they rehash uh, a negative attitude toward Israel? Maybe they were remembering what happened 50 years ago. You don't know. Why did Hanan take their advice? We don't know. But it could be because their advice went with his inclination. That's human nature as well. You have a gut reaction, then you talk to somebody who says, yeah, and that inclines you to go further, faster, more assertively, more aggressively. The same thing happened with the, the population in general. Verse 6, again we read, the people of Ammon saw that they made themselves repulsive to David, and the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, etc., etc., all these small kingdoms they hired. When I read that and thought about it, I thought to myself, wait a minute, the people found that they were repulsive? The people went and hired these other kings, these other nations to make war? No, even now today, the, the people don't do that, even though you can sample people. You know, we get reports on the, the stock market and say, well, the market thinks, or the market feels, or the market doesn't think or feel. And, and you get reports and say, well, Americans now think, and, and what, what do you got? Well, you've got a poll of 100 people and you project out from that. Well, they didn't even have those kind of things, polls or, or market monitoring uh, of the people of Ammon. But somehow there was a general sense in the population, encouraged by Hanan, I think probably, encouraged by the princes and the advisors, I think likely. And public opinion was turned against Israel. That only solidified Hanan's thinking and helped him, encouraged him to continue to go in the wrong direction. That is typical of human nature. Hanan made alliances with the nearby kingdoms. We read about the Syrians, different Syrian kingdoms. Why did he turn to them? Well, you can read the history just a little bit earlier in chapter 8, and you will find that this Hadadezer, whose name I said we'd come back to, was defeated by David shortly before this because the kingdoms of the Syrians, several small kingdoms, had encroached upon the Israelite area, the Israelite territory from the north. And when David began to reestablish the boundaries of Israel, he had to push them back. And they were sorely defeated. We should get the numbers to see how badly they were defeated. Chapter 8, verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. David was recovering Israelites, Israel's territory. David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. And it says he hamstrung the chariot horses. So they, these nations were severely defeated 
by Israel. So Hanan goes to them, surprise, surprise, they're willing to jump right in there and be allies and go against Israel again. He went to get support from people who were already highly prejudiced against David. They were not neutral. This is also human nature. Once you're headed in a bad judgment, you look for reinforcement. Turn to Proverbs chapter 30, please. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 33. Hanan violated the principle that's discussed here. Proverbs 30, verse 33, warns us, for as the churning of milk produces butter, how many of you have churned butter, made butter by hand? A few people have. Uh, I have a number of times. We did that with our children when they were small, just to get a gallon of, of whole milk and shake it until it actually separates and produces butter, just to show them how it's done. Probably you don't realize that butter can be churned from whole milk unless uh, you have done that. It doesn't come just from the freezer section of Walmart. As the churning of milk produces butter, the wringing of the nose produces blood. So the forcing of wrath produces strife. Using the language of the Proverbs, Hanan wrung the nose of David. He chose a win-lose approach. He chose an approach by humiliating the envoys or the ambassadors that came from David. He chose an approach that would guarantee there was going to be a victor and there was going to be a vanquished. Somebody was going to lose. Either David was going to be crushed and, and Israel was going to become subservient to Ammon or vice versa. There was no way out because of the approach that he took. That way of dealing with conflict is the way of human nature. You see a pattern developing here, I'm sure. Turn back a few pages in Proverbs to chapter 24. We've already read that Hanan started a war. This proverb, chapter 24, verse 6, advises you how to go about making a war. Proverbs 24, verse 6, for by wise counsel, you will wage your own war. Now, didn't Hanan do that? He got counsel from his advisors, and then he waged war. Didn't he follow the Proverbs? And in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. Actually, what Hanan did is he kind of bent the principle here. He went with a number of agreeing opinions. There's a difference between going with a number of agreeing opinions and wise counsel. Just because you get a lot of people saying the same thing doesn't mean that you've gotten a multitude of counselors. I remember various controversies in the church in decades past, and people would quote this one and that one, and, and then this proverb and say, we've got a multitude of counselors. You know, we, we've got agreement, and uh, therefore we know the course to take. Well, not necessarily. There's more to that, as we will see. It is the, a common error in today's world to just go when there is a group of collective agreeing opinions. It is the way of human nature, though, and it is not good. What could Hanan have done differently? What would have saved thousands of lives? What would have changed the course of history? How could he have judged better? Well, let's just reverse those things that are typical of human nature. First, he could have exercised some humility. He could have sat down with the envoys and said, fellas, please tell me why you're here. You know what, I've got some advisors who are a little curious about you. They're, they're frankly suspect of your motivations. They're not sure of David. Would, would you tell me you know, exactly what's on his mind and why you're here and, and why we should trust you? Just, just talk it out some. It wouldn't have cost him anything. Nobody would have died by sitting down and talking. 
and he could have discovered that his judgment was off. It is not human nature to uh, do that, to take your, your time and investigate your, your thinking like that and exercise humility. Humility does not come naturally. Hanan could have chosen to let go of the past. I gave you a little bit of the history there of the past. Look at Proverbs 17, go back just a few more pages. And think of uh, Hanan's advisors and even the, the people of the land at this time. Proverbs 17, verse 9. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. Should every transgression be covered? It's arguable. You can talk about that and debate that. Uh, no, I don't think every transgression should be covered, but there is a time, obviously, from this proverb, the principle of the scripture is there is a time to cover a transgression, and there is a warning that if you just keep going over a problem from the past, you can actually separate people. The Amplified, classic Amplified translation of the Bible has this verse this way. He who covers and forgives an offense seeks love. But he who repeats or harps on a matter separates even close friends. Now, I'm admittedly reading into the scripture here a little bit, but I get the sense that probably, maybe the people of Ammon, but probably the princes certainly, were repeating the history from 50 years before and wouldn't let go of it. Let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 10. I'll show you somebody who did let go of the past. And this is, this is an interesting twist and kind of a shame that it didn't work out more positively. 2 Samuel chapter 10. First couple of verses, we read it, but probably didn't sink in when you were first hearing it. Verse 1, it happened after this, after some of the consolidation of the northern tribes, that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanan his son reigned in his place. And then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. What was that? The Bible doesn't say. But sometime after what happened 50 years prior, and Saul defeating Nahash, and Hanan being, uh, Ammon being subject to Israel, Somehow Ammon made peace with Israel. Now he showed some kindness to David over the years uh, while he was fleeing from the Philistines, could be referring to that. Some commentaries suggest that they actually made a peace treaty between Ammon and Israel, and David was now here re-upping that. We don't know. But we do know this, Nahash changed his approach. He made peace. Think today, Palestinians make peace with the Israelites. It hasn't happened, but that's... Uh, by comparison, a parallel, what happened at the time. And Hanan could have let go of the past and fathered his, followed his father's example. But it does not come naturally to let go of a wrong, real or perceived. And that's a subject in itself that deserves a lot of discussion. There are wrongs that are real, and there are wrongs that are only perceived, that never happen. But in people's minds, they take offense just the same. They can be just as angry. They can just as be, be just as willing to go to war, whether the real is, or whether the wrong is real or just imagined. Hanan could have chosen to reject the wrong opinions of others, which wouldn't have been easy because those wrong opinions came from the chief advisors of the land. The proverb said, go and get advice from counselors and then make war. 
but this time he should have rejected it. He could have rejected the, the general uh, opinion of the public. Again, not an easy thing to do, but there is a time to do that. I marveled just watching the news earlier in the year and all the debate over abortion and the Supreme Court ruling. I marveled that in January there was a national poll that sh showed the majority of Americans were in favor of abortion. And then in March, the majority of Americans were not in favor of abortion. And I thought, did right and wrong change from January to March? Did, did, did that many people change their minds? Did different people get asked the question by the surveyors? It's, it's kind of absurd, isn't it? Something that serious and that major changed that much? Right and wrong cannot be decided just on the basis of public opinion. It takes discernment to be able to pick up on wise counsel. The key of the principle about safety in a multitude of counselors is in the counselor. There are people who are willing to give counsel, and then there are genuine counselors. A genuine counselor helps you, helps you who are going for counsel, to make a decision objectively instead of subjectively. Give you an example. You're going to go buy a car, new car. Hey, hooray, you're going to be able to buy a new car. You can find one that's got the computer chips in it and everything. You've made up your mind, I'm going to get such and such a car. I'm not going to pay over such an amount. It's going to get so much mileage. Now, you may want an electric battery in there. I mean, a, a, maybe an electric car. You may want a gas-powered one. That's your decision. But you've got all these facts out in mind. You are objectively approaching this. Somewhere between there and the time you get to the car dealership, and the car salesman shows you this nice car and you slip into the seat and you feel the leather and you smell a new car smell and he tells you how easy it will be to buy this. Somewhere the price that you were willing to go to went, went up and the color that you wanted doesn't make so much difference and the miles per gallon you're not so keen on as you were before because your, your judgment has become subjective instead of objective. I tell people when I've counseled them for marriage, the place of a marriage counselor is not to tell you you can be married or you cannot be married or you will have a perfect marriage or you will have an imperfect marriage. It is to help you be objective in your thinking. Because when you approach marriage, guess what? You become subjective. When you come to the point where you say, boy, this person is just the most perfect person ever. We were made for each other. There's nobody else on earth like this person. Your thinking has gone from objective toward the subjective side. Now, you don't want to marry somebody who is totally objective. My mate must get this many miles per gallon, must be, you know. <laughs> there must be subjectivity when you're going to be married. I mean, you're counseling about making a, a life-altering decision. You need a counselor who can help you be objective. Proverbs 15, one more proverb to look at. Proverbs 15, verse 1. Some of you are tempted to recite this one from memory. I want to get the full verse. You remember part of this, I'm sure. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The International Standard Version has it a little differently. I'll read that to you. A gentle response diverts anger, but a harsh statement incites fury. What approach did Hanan choose? A harsh statement. He guaranteed fury. He could have chosen words that allow for a win-win as opposed to words that provoke a fight. The way of peace, the words that make peace, do not come 
naturally. Now, interestingly, Hanan was the one who lost his reputation in this case. He uh, accused David of uh, wrong intentions and wrong motivations. He rallied tens of thousands of people against David, but David came out with a positive reputation in this case, and the accuser was the loser. That happens more often than not, I think. So what's the lesson for us? We should not judge. Is that, is that the lesson? Well, certainly judgment is involved here, but it's broader than that. Before I get to, to putting the fine point on it, I want to give you five related points that are facts about the Christian way of life that have to do with this subject. Fact number one, the reputation that concerns us is not a reputation with other people, not with other nations, not with our banker, but with God. That's the reputation that concerns us. I've mentioned several examples of people who lost or damaged their reputations with other people. I mentioned that silly example between me and Mrs. Gage. Mrs. Gage still liked me afterwards, but we never talked it through. Uh, there are other times when my reputation has been tainted and I've been falsely accused. That's not the point. There have been times when you have been falsely accused and your reputation has been tainted. There have been times when I have misjudged different people. There have been times when you have misjudged different people. That happens in life. That, that's just reality. And we can be overly concerned about those things or we can concentrate on our reputation with God. I was talking with a grandmother earlier this week and we were musing on how quickly the reputation of parents can change in the eyes of children. Something about a child reaches age 11, age 12. Now, this is not true of any of you children here, any of you teenagers here, preteens. But suddenly, mom, who, who is just great and, and just wonderful, and dad, who is so wise, they're just dumb. They, they just don't know what it's like to be young anymore, and they're just so unfair, and all their judgments are unfair. Well, what happened? You know, well, the child is falsely accusing them, and lo and behold, Six, eight years later, the child says, or the, the child of the parent, not a child anymore, but becomes an adult and realizes how wise the parents have become. First Corinthians chapter four, Paul speaks of dealing with being misjudged and how he reacted to it. First Corinthians chapter four, verse three. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. Now, unless Paul was a very unusual human being, he was affected by when people misjudged him. I mean, it had to hurt his feelings for people to accuse him of misappropriating funds or accuse him of just wanting attention or accusing him of being a, a persecutor of the church. Those things had to sting. He had to come to the place in his mind where he pushed those accusations aside and didn't give much thought to them. And I'm sure at different times when he was accused in court, uh, and I don't know if any of you have ever been accused in court, I was sued for divorce by a wife of many years at one time, not this wife. I still remember getting the letter from the court that says, you have been sued. And it, it was just a very shocking, miserable experience. And I, it's not an easy thing to say. It doesn't bother me if any human court accuses me of something. In fact, I don't even judge myself. What's that? Does he? Never, never have a doubt about himself? I don't think he means that at all. I think he pushed aside accusations and condemnations and misjudgments about him 
and even some true judgments, perhaps. I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. That doesn't make me a great person. He didn't say, I don't care if I break the law and go to court. That, that wasn't his, his attitude. His attitude was, I'm not going to be broken down by accusations and by others' judgments. I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Like Paul, the reputation that concerns us most is our standing with God. It's not easy to just say, I heard somebody said this about me, but I don't care. Yeah, you care. But as a Christian, you push that aside and say, well, let me, let me look at my standing before God. This person thinks this, but is it true? Maybe you pray about it and say, God, if I have done this, please help me change, show me repentance. Number two, we take, our respons we take responsibility for our actions and our motivations. There was an LHT blog on this last week about how Christians must take responsibility for their actions and their motivations. Hanan clearly did not do that, but what did you do every time I said, this is human nature and this does not come naturally? Were you not looking at yourself and thinking about your own experiences? Maybe as, as often happens, something happened yesterday or you had a conversation over dinner last night about these things and, and you were thinking about your own situation and applying it to you because that is godly character to judge yourself in your standing between you and God. Galatians chapter 6 mentions the need to take responsibility for our own actions. Galatians 6 verse 4. But let each one examine his own work, and then we will have rejoicing in him, he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. If you are ever falsely accused, or reflecting on what I said a few moments ago, when you are falsely accused, what's the, the outcome of that? How do you get your reputation back, I asked earlier? Is it like you go to court, like Secretary Donovan did, and you get the, the jury to applaud at the end, and finally you're free? Well, he didn't even get his reputation back then. He was still out $13 million and his reputation. He was no longer a secretary in the cabinet. Truth is, when you have been accused, your reputation is stained. You can't get it back by what somebody else says or does. If your reputation really is changed, if your position, your standing with God has been affected, there's only one person who can get that back, one human being. That is you. That is me regarding myself. It's between us and God. Verse 5, for each one shall bear his own load. We take responsibility for ourselves. It's easy to say, well, I have trouble because of, and fill in the blank, mention somebody's name. Well, it's easy to say, it's not accurate. Number three, in God's church, we use one set of weights. What do I mean by that? Let's go back to the Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 20 this time. Proverbs 20, verse 10, the King James reads, diverse weights and diverse measures, they're both alike an abomination to the Lord. Well, what does that mean? The Amplified Version makes it a little clearer. Differing weights, that is one for buying and another for selling, and differing measures, one for buying and another for selling, 
Both of them are detestable and offensive to the Lord. Apply this to a business situation. Say you're going to go buy a gallon of gas. Well, when you buy a gallon, you want that to be a gallon. Now, let's say you're in the business of selling gasoline. And, uh, you know, you're taking advantage of all the people in America at this time. I'm, I'm being facetious. That is the accusation. But when you sell gasoline and you sell it for a few ounces less than a gallon, and therefore you're making more money overall, and boy, that would be totally dishonest. You'd never do that as a Christian, would you? You wouldn't do that in, in any way, shape, or form. And yet, we need to realize that we all do that in human relationships. We use different measuring. How do I mean that? I do something, and I learn that I've offended you. I go to you, I say, sorry, I didn't mean that. Please don't judge me too harshly. Please use lightweights when you're judging me, because, you know, it was a lightweight comment. I, I didn't really mean that. But then human beings judging other people, we see something, one thing, like a Polaroid snapshot, just one thing, or a digital snapshot with your smartphone, just one, one picture, one person, one, a few uh, moments in, in time. Or we hear one thing, don't even see something, and yet we're able to make a judgment out of it. This person is, and we have a paragraph to describe such and such a person. It's human nature to do that. But Christians should not. We should use one set of weights. We should think of others with the same mercy, mercy is the operative word, that we would like applied to ourselves. Christians use one set of weights. We apply Matthew 7:12, which is commonly called uh, the uh, golden rule. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, Matthew 7, 12. I'll give that to you from the voice translation. This is what our scriptures come to teach. This is everything. This is a summation of the full point of the Bible. This is the Christian way of life. In everything, in every circumstance, do to others as you would have them do to you. Use the same weight the same measure with others as you would have them do with you. That's not easy, is it? None of these points, these characteristics, these qualities is easy. It, they, they summarize the Christian way of life. They summarize battling against and overcoming and putting down human nature, those qualities that I mentioned that came to Hanan so readily and the mistakes that he made. They're not easy, but they are Christianity. Number four, we doubt our own judgment. That's what Paul wrote about there that we already read in 1 Corinthians. In today's world, people are quick to accept their judgment on everything and anything. We're encouraged to give our opinions. Call in the radio station, give your opinion. Fill out this survey and give your opinion. Are you like me? You make a purchase and you get a request. Well, fill out a survey to let us know what you thought of the recent purchase. We always go, eh, 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 not going to do that. Some of you may work in data collection. You may not like us for doing that. <laughs> but I, I don't want to have my data mining. I, I got what I wanted. I bought something from you, and okay, you'll find out if I buy it again, if I like the purchase. I don't want to give you more details than that. But we are encouraged to give our opinions all the time. And then there were, we have these wonderful means of posting our opinions, Facebook, WhatsApp, What's Not App, Snapchat, uh, Instagram, 
all kinds of ways to post our opinions, and we do so readily. I say we, I mean people in general do that readily. But as Christians, we do one thing that others don't tend to do, and that is we consider the possibility that our opinion may be wrong. We have an opinion, we, we do, that's the way God made us. We, we, we judge, we make opinions, we draw conclusions. But we should also consider as Christians that we may be wrong. I can sound very simplistic, but it's an invaluable tool to pause just for a moment to consider, is this right? If I got it right, I heard this, I saw this, I feel pretty certain about it, but could I be wrong? Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, verse 3. I think I'm going to read, I want to read verse 2 along with that. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. This world has a way of just grabbing onto an opinion and holding to it as if it was truth and then telling everybody about it. Do not be conformed to the way the world does things, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind to think differently so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. It's a little clearer in the Amplified Version. Listen to how that translation has this verse. For by the grace of God given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think more highly of himself and of his importance and of his ability, and we might add in there to analyze, or of his opinion, do not think more highly of his opinion than he ought to think. Is your opinion important? Yes. Is what you think important? Absolutely. Does God want you to stop thinking? Absolutely not. But we ought not to think more of our opinions than is just but to think so as to have sound judgment, this translation continues, as God has apportioned to each a degree of faith and a purpose designed for service. Number five characteristic, we give others the benefit of the doubt. Number four was we doubt our judgment. Number five, we give others the benefit of the doubt. You're familiar with the term cancel culture today. You've seen this all over the news. If you watch the news any amount at all, you've seen people whose careers have been wiped out, people who are famous, who, who are authorities in their field, or maybe uh, high income earners who suddenly are out of a job altogether because of something that they said or didn't say. Maybe it was said or not said decades ago, but all of a sudden it gets blown up and just like that instantly. Their, their life has changed. They can lose a career, they can lose their friends, they can lose coworkers, they can even lose a relationship with family members. Just quickly, just instantly. Just because they're out of sync with the current public mood. This entire phenomenon is based on a myth. The myth that the ones who are doing the canceling are perfect. Christ said to the accusers of the woman taken in adultery, those who are without sin cast the first stone. And uh, they realized that they all had feet of clay. They were uh, human beings who made mistakes. 
This cancel culture is based on the idea of, well, I can cancel you because I, you know, I've got nothing in my past. Well, that, that's just silly. Every human being has things in his past. In God's church, we're aware of that, and we reject the cancel culture. We know that at any given point in time, each of us is building our reputation, our standing, our position with God. Or we're maintaining that standing, that position, that reputation with God. Or we are rebuilding a reputation, a position, a standing with God from which we have slipped. Because, hey, that happens with human beings. There is a well-known message to the churches in Revelation that I'd like to look at. Revelation chapter 2. It actually addresses this, this concept. I don't know if you've thought of these messages in this way. There's a promise, or there are promises. They, are, they have a common denominator, so I guess you could call them a promise, given to each of the seven churches. Let's read the first one in uh, Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, there's a specific message, and the conclusion in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to all seven. And the message is, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What's this mean? It means that people in Ephesus were not perfect. They had to overcome. Their reputations, their positions, their standing was stained, was marred justifiably, apparently, not just somebody accusing them. The messages are inherently encouraging, though. They tell us that we should not fear of being canceled by Christ. Let me back up for just a second and make this point. The very fact that it mentions overcoming means that we're talking about people who are imperfect, that is, people who have made mistakes, done things that they shouldn't, said things that they shouldn't, people in whose past you could dig out from Facebook, whatever, record you want to mention, interview the great-grandparents uh, or great-grandchildren one way or the other, and you can find things about everybody. Everybody has something to overcome. That's the implication of this message here, at least to the Ephesians. They're not the only ones who get this message. Chapter 3, verse 1. Mention we should not fear being canceled by Christ. This is to the dead church. Revelation 3, verse 1. The angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works that you have a name in which uh, that you are alive, but you are dead. Ooh, what a thing to hear from God. You know, you're, you're called, you're in the church, but eh, you're not doing well. You're dead spiritually. But what, what does God say to them? Verse 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. That's the cancellation we need to be worried about. And God says it's not going to happen to whom? To the spiritually dead. To those at that far extreme of spiritual strength, they've just, the wick has gone out, the light has gone out. But they can come back. They can rebuild. Wow, that's great. That's encouraging. Chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. And who are the Laodiceans? Uh, verse 16. I know that because you are lukewarm, you're neither cold nor hot. I vomit you out of my mouth. Ooh, it was bad enough to be called dead. Now God is going to spit you out. Boy, you're a bad taste in my mouth. Of all the things you'd like Christ to say when you meet him. Wow. 
Just thinking of you gives me a bad taste. <laughs> no, I don't want to hear that. But of these, uh, which one of you is going to say, do not raise your hand? Which one of you is going to say, I am Sardis. I identify with being dead spiritually. Which one is going to say, I'm Laodicean? Now you might say, well, I know so-and-so. He's Laodicean. No, don't go there. <laughs> we, don't, we don't identify with that. But some of us apparently have these characteristics because they are messages to all of the churches. Uh, and they are to be read by God's people down through time. But even of Laodicea, it says in verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, even as, also, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The spiritually dead and the spiritually wish-washy, lukewarm, can overcome. That's very encouraging. We should never feel locked in. We should never look on people as though they are locked in. They are never going to make it. They are out. They are such this way or that way. No, no cancel culture in the church of God. But there's one more church to look at. What church do you identify with? What church do people identify with and have they identified with down through time? Well, that would be the one mentioned in chapter 3, verse 7. The angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, and what church was this? This is the faithful one. Verse 8, I know your works. You have this open door. Nobody can shut it. You have a little strength. You've kept my word. You have not denied my name. And then go on to say many other positive things about them. I've studied church history and read of different Church of God groups down through time. And guess which church they identify with? Philadelphia. Which is nothing wrong with that. And indeed, we should. But notice this about Philadelphia. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Even the faithful church needed to overcome, overcome human nature, overcome temptations, overcome slipping, overcome a stain on their reputation, because those things happen in life. We are all overcomers. We should all be like God in the sense of being champions of overcomers. That's the message to the seven churches. God champions overcoming. He encourages people who need to overcome to do so and then assures us of being greatly rewarded for that. We should be believers in the possibility of overcoming. We should be enablers of overcomers. Galatians chapter 6 again. And we are close to finishing. Galatians 6, let's read the, the first part of the chapter this time. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, I understand the meaning is if anyone slips, and you could justifiably say that person's reputation, standing position, is not what it should be as a Christian. You see that. It's not a misjudgment in this case. It is an accurate judgment. You can ha that can happen. You can actually see that. This is what you should do and I should do. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted because at different times you too will slip and you want others to weigh you the same way you weigh them. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. When we know of a certainty of a fellow believer's weakness, 
We should be thinking of how to restore his reputation, not who we can tell about it. Not that we would do that. In conclusion, I noted earlier that we might think that the lesson to take away from Hunan's or Hanan's experience is don't judge. That, that's not the case. He should have made a judgment, but he should have made a better judgment than he did. Christ expresses the lesson, and this is the point that I want to make. This is the title of the sermon. In John chapter 7, verse 24. John 7, verse 24, Christ said, do not judge according to appearance. You can put in parentheses, which comes naturally to all of us, but judge with righteous judgment. That's the title for the sermon, judge with righteous judgment. The amplified version, classic uh, amplified version for this verse has, be honest in your judgment and do not decide at a glance superficially or by appearances, but judge fairly and righteously. Judging with righteous judgment is a great responsibility. Hanan failed at it. There are consequences when we fail to judge with righteous judgment, but the consequences won't be the same as it was for him. Thousands of people won't die. Nations won't rise or fall. Uh, many people will not necessarily suffer, but individuals can suffer. Division can happen. Separations of, of people who were together can occur. Friends can be separated. Reputations can be harmed. In God's church, we're aware of the fact that all of us are building, maintaining, or rebuilding our reputations with God. And we're committed to helping each other do the same thing. We are enablers of overcomers. And because that is true, this place, here, God's church, is where you go to regain your reputation. If you'd please rise once again, sing a final hymn as part of our service today, which will be hymn number 158. Not many.